0: welcome to the third episode of the newest season of savari 22 for this episode i really wanted to bring in an expert in the field of fitness training as well as performance psychologist and also an experienced coach to learn more about the spirit mind and body and the person that fit this description was tj dempsey a guy that i've trained with a guy that i've heard a lot about from this area very excited to have on the show tj how are you doing today
1: I'm good. I appreciate it. And I appreciate being in the realm of psychology, you offering people something like this as a, an outlet to either, you know, sort of go inside themselves or outside themselves. I think more people need an opportunity to do that. So thank you for doing something like this.
0: Oh, I appreciate that, man. That really means a lot to me. And before we get into it, I just really want to congratulate you and your wife Eunice for expecting your first child. I think that's awesome.
1: Yeah, we do too. It's, it's a nerve wracking deal in certain ways. And, you know, you always want to think that you're ready for it and prepare as much as you can for it. But you know, what I keep hearing over and over again is there's no perfect time to do it and you're (laughs) never going to feel fully ready. So it's just one of those things that just like anything else that you just dive into and you, you do, you do the best you can and the, the best you have the tools to do. Yeah, absolutely. I like how you said that, you know, there really never is a
0: perfect time for it and you just dive in and go after it. So I think that's really awesome. I think, I mean, you're really going to grow from it. But aside from that, let's talk about some of the undergraduate degrees that you've gotten, uh, why you have gotten it and, and why you think this is important, first and foremost, to yourself. And then the others so let's let's start with exercise science what about exercise science attracted you to get that degree i guess i was always
1: sort of drawn to it growing up my my dad was was military so he was very physically active sometimes i'd even you know when i was a little tight i would go to pt with him and go see if i could run the two mile faster than than all the guys or whatever and they. They allowed it at the time. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure why or if they still do. But, no, it always just sort of came natural to me being a multi-sport athlete. You know, when you're a multi-sport athlete, you have to, at some point, try to figure out on your own how to take care of yourself because coaches of the actual sport, even strength and conditioning coaches, no matter how good they are, can only offer you so much uh so you you have to at some point learn how to self-regulate and i didn't learn that until way later
0: on Mm. but uh i I guess i was always just naturally drawn to it
1: oh i really like that i think that's
0: cool and uh just a question for me personally what what branch of the military was your dad in he started off in the navy
1: Mm. um and went all over the place for that i can't even quote for you off the top of my head where he ended up, but a couple of notable places were in Alaska. He just went off on his own and like nerded out. Like he, he, he was like a scientist type, you know, oh. um, he's a, he's a, he's one of those guys who could keep himself completely entertained with just him in the room and like two books. Um, but yeah, he, <laughs> he ended up in Alaska, Key West, Florida. Um, I think he went to Germany when he was in the army, but he went from Navy for, I can't even remember how many years to, to national guard. So, and then he was on active duty right after nine 11 in Mm. Grand Forks at the air force base. Mm. Um, he was too old to get shipped overseas. He stayed, he stayed home, so to speak, and did air force base defense. Mm. Oh, cool so he's
0: had a little experience in <clears throat> all three branches so that's pretty interesting yeah his favorite
1: experience was and like i said i can't remember who it was with but he went to germany and he speaks a decent amount of german so he had a heck of a lot of fun probably a lot more fun than most of the guys who didn't
0: yeah. really
1: speak the language at all you know and he he studied up beforehand about the, the culture and he already knew a lot about the culture because our family is is uh originates from there from from both sides so yeah he had a, he had a lot of fun maybe a little too much fun sometimes yeah, i'm
0: sure he had too much fun i heard they drink warm beer over there and
1: that's the thing i the he hasn't mentioned anything about warm beer but he's mentioned his favorite one of his favorite things to tell is like the first time that americans go to germany and have beer they're, they they you know we here we get used to like the uh the domestics, the lights, you know, the mm-hmm. Coors Light and the Mic Ultra and whatever, you know, but then you go to Germany and I, I don't even remember what the percentages were or whatever, but it's like, it's like, it's like a shot of whiskey, but it's f- <laughs> you know, filled full, but it's a beer, they call yeah. it a beer. And so, you know, these guys would drink like one, one stein, <laughs> of, of german beer and be like completely inebriated and then you mm-hmm. have to take care of them while it's forgotten all over the place <laughs> the sergeants are
0: pissed off yeah oh i'm sure that's hilarious i can imagine yeah. yeah i could i could sense a little uh i didn't know this about you but that, that your dad was in the military but i could sense it the way you carry yourself and i think that's very interesting one thing that i wanted to ask you is you have your undergrad in exercise science, but also performance psychology. So I was curious to see how those correlate according to you.
1: Well, the way that they correlate is I I guess I can flip over to the other part. My mom was a psychology major. Mm. Um, She, she did the whole college thing way later in life. She, she raised four kids during that time as a single parent and um. So she, but anyway, she had to wait until later in life. And she went into psychology, had a really uh, kind of life-changing experience through her education. And I always kind of heard about that growing up, always had psychology books around, you know, so I was, you know, like a seventh grader reading intro to psychology, you know, college textbooks, like a, like a freaking loser.
0: But um,
1: <laughs> so I guess that's how it started. But then, you know, as an athlete too, a, there's a lot of little things <clears throat> And maybe not just as an athlete, but it's where I notice it. There's a lot of there's a lot of little things that happen, both at the younger level, and particularly as you reach that high school and collegiate level, where the elite levels of performance they're they're very obvious on the field, but sometimes like in the weight room mm-hmm. isn't super apparent. You know what I mean? And just how people develop mentally, and what kind of approach they take to their training and to performance, you know, on the field on game day or whatever, that sort of interested me because I started looking into, you know, how can I make my, my body better? You know, when I was a seventh grader, I'd started doing bodybuilding, like, like an idiot had no idea what I was doing, (laughs) but, you know, kept researching that more and more and more, and then realized that there was this whole other aspect. Um, And for me, it just started with something as simple as goal setting which is, Mm -hmm. I I guess I should say, can be much more important. And I know pretty much everybody hears the term goal setting and they're like, oh my God, put me to sleep. But Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of different types of goal setting. You know, if you talk about product versus process, maybe we can get into that stuff. But that's kind of what it started with for me was just learning how to breathe to Mm
0: -hmm.
1: get my heart rate back down at a faster rate than it normally would. Learning how to set goals that were based on process and not always just product and short term and long term and all kinds of things and and then it just kind of went outward from there sometimes you're just exposed to one book and it it it, it can spark and it, i'm sure you've had at least one experience with something like that you know where you were just exposed to one little thing and then all of a sudden it just sparks this whole interest mm-hmm. of yours you know
0: yeah i think that's awesome hearing about your story and how that goes and like you said you know You can say it's a spark. You can say it's an avalanche. However, it goes, but eventually, all it takes is something little. And so, just relate to that experience. I remember, you know, the way I was raised. My dad was a psychologist as well, so I remember always having these philosophical questions and seeking these types of answers. And my brother was the same. My brother gave me a book, and that's really what sparked it, just like you and. I mean, I could go all day and night about how books are important, but we don't want to talk about that, about how we're nerds. But something I wanted to talk about, because it is important that you had mentioned, is the goal setting. And I just got done talking to my guys yesterday about setting goals. So I'd love to hear what it is that you're doing or what information that you came across where it made goal setting go from this sucks to this is actually going to help me. It kind of goes into a little bit bigger topic, but
1: if we think about motivation, you know, we, we won't go too far down that hole, but there there's essentially two different types of motivation. There's, there's intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation, right? So intrinsic motivation is generally more correlated with like loving the process, not just the product, right? An extrinsic motivator is money or, or winning or whatever. So when I had it presented and, you know, everybody hears about the intrinsic, extrinsic motivation, we've all been, had that shoved down our throats for a long time. But when I had it presented to me in the way that it was like, well, you can, you can apply this to goals as well Mm -hmm. to make your daily training or your daily job or whatever you're doing both more entertaining and more fulfilling and probably lead to better success, uh, whatever it is, then that really caught my attention, right? So I think the big thing that people need to think about is, um, is process versus versus product goals. That that's the number one thing. There's a lot of other variables that can go into it. But, you know, like a a product goal, you know, and you you see this in pamphlets that coaches hand out for every single sport. It's like, we want to win a championship. If we don't win a championship, it was a failure. Whatever. Okay, that's a good long-term goal. I want to bat 350 on the year. Like, okay, that's a good long-term goal, I guess. But there's a lot of things uh building up to that that you might not have control over. And you know, they always say to set goals that are, you know, at the very edge of attainable. So in other words, what that means is that this goal that you set, if it's correctly set and you're using the smart goal setting guideline, is that there's a high probability that you're not going to attain it. Right. I don't know what you, I, I think you were a, a baseball player for a long time. I don't know what you batted in high school or whatever, but um, we won't talk about it. <laughs> we'll leave that one I had, I had some good games but not some good games
0: either I,
1: okay i got you i was i was the same i i <laughs> i uh was not not the greatest at baseball but you know obviously you're not going to set a goal to bat 150 on the year which you know for people that don't know baseball 150 is like if you're a major league pitcher that like that's what they would expect is like 150 right if, and if you're mm-hmm. pitching the know but you know so you'd set a goal of 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 hitting like 400 on the air or 350 or, you know, whatever's really, really good for you, something that's barely above. So when you're struggling on the process to attain that goal, right. And it's looking like, because we're, we're projection machines, right. Mm -hmm. We're we're always projecting. Am I going to hit the goal? Am I not going to hit the goal? Right. So rather Mm -hmm. than, rather than focusing on that, it's like, okay, we got this 350 goal or whatever it is. Now let's break this down. What are the Mm -hmm. actual, the, the very minor things that would lead up to me batting 350? Like what, what is my mental approach? What, how many, how many swings am I taking at a pitch that I suck at hitting Mm -hmm. per day? Uh, how many times a, a week or a month am I, am I just speaking with my coach about my approach to hit, whatever it might be. Right. You know, how, how many times am I, have I. Am I striking out looking stuff like that? That's more on the process where it's like, okay, so I'm only batting 300 on the year so far. It doesn't look like I'm going to hit 350, but you, you can still have a positive out of it because you, you, you know, you can realize that, okay, I'm striking out looking a hell of a lot less than I was last year. Or I feel, you know, if I rated on a scale of one to 10, each at bat, I feel much more mentally prepared for each at bat. I'm at an average of an eight this year rather than a six. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. very subjective, but it's, it's important to basically, it's important to have, have smaller goals to build up to the big one to put it in layman's terms. Absolutely. I love what you said. I
0: think that kind of hit home for me because this honestly stresses me out. And sometimes I don't even know why, like, I feel like I kind of feel some energy drain for me, but it's that thing called that projection machine that you said, I just feel like I'm always projecting, like today, I benched 135, like four sets of 10. I'm like, oh, because I'm used to, you know, that being easy. But I was like, I'm burnt out. I'm tired. And for me, it's because I'm projecting, one, from the past that I used to be able to do this easier. And two, in the future, that I like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Like, right. like I used to be able to do. So I right. think that that really... I so- mean, so yeah. taking the the
1: process versus product, it's like, okay, let's say Josh has a goal of getting back to his 397,000 pound bench press, or I mean, yeah, sorry, yeah, I 300, <laughs> 300, but let, let's say you got the goal of getting back to that. Right. And you're having a crappy day, but let's say previously you had set a process goal of a hey, it doesn't matter how many times during the week I work out, I want to get a total volume, meaning your combination of the amount of weight you're lifting and, you know, the amount of reps you're, you're doing multiplied. Um, I want to get a total volume of weight pushed on the bench press or some sort of pressing movement, let's say of whatever it is. I don't know, 2000 pounds per week, let's say probably much more than that, but just to keep, keep it simple. So if if you're sucking on the bench press, for 135 for four sets of 10 that day, then it's like, okay, I still have another workout th- later on in the week where I'm doing some upper body stuff. Or later on today, I can maybe do a different exercise, like, I don't know, flies or push ups or whatever you are motivated to do that day to get that amount of volume in. And you can kind of calculate that and go, okay, I sucked and I was terrible on the bench press today, but I hit this process goal of doing. 2000 pounds of pressing movements for the week, at least. Right. So then not only does it keep you in the game mentally, but it keeps you in the game physically because a lot of times folks won't reach their, you know, I got caught in that rut for a long time because I wasn't, you know, if, if we divert into just completely working out here for a second, once I was done being an athlete, I I never had to track anything as an athlete, you you know, how it goes. It's like, Hey, okay, here's your one rep max here's the workouts you're doing for the next eight weeks front squat. You're doing exactly this amount of weight at exactly this many reps. There might be some variability, variability there, but usually not much. So, you as an athlete, you never have to track anything. And mm-hmm. I kept doing that once I was done, which becomes problematic because it's much more difficult to see progress that way. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Um, so once you start tracking it, 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 it tends to make a big difference and then you can set more process goals, you know? Yeah. dude, I I love what you're
0: saying. I have never heard of volume goals and that just, I've always been, I was telling myself today, but I, you know, everybody has their their battles. I was telling myself today, well, just enjoy the workout. Like, you know, even though I'm, I'm just forget about the past almost in a way where it's like, okay, what I did today was good. And I did hit some pushups and that was nice and all that good stuff. And I, I had a really good day yesterday with legs. So it's like, you know, you're trying to, you know, this mental gymnastics, But to hear somebody that's credentialed in these fields, who's been through the same experience, say, man, you know, less product orientated, less projection, you know, scarcity, and and focus on, in a way, the journey, and for layman's terms, you know, joy in the journey, but how to calculate, how to measure the joy of the journey, really does matter for a lot of people today because it is important. So I just really, really, really think that's awesome. And I do want to go back to one thing, because I think this, this will resonate with a lot of people. Somebody said earlier about self-regulating. You said you didn't know how to do it. And, and so I want you to touch back on that. So self-regulating, like how do we self-regulate? Because a lot of people today, and I have this conversation all the time, are lifting on their own. They're lifting on their own, and they're extremely inexperienced. And I, like, I've like i been trained. I've been trained my entire life. I didn't have to track anything. So there's just a whole mess of people out there, especially people that are listening, that are lifting on their own, and they need advice. Well, you, you don't have to like
1: be a personal trainer or an exercise physiologist, but but I think the most important thing is people have to understand that there's things happening that uh, that aren't at the surface that are difficult to see. So mm-hmm. we're kind of talking about two ends of this. Sp- of the the spectrum here, there's there's the end where it's like former athletes like you and I, which is a very very common issue, and then there's kind of the other end, which we might get to in a minute, but we'll 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 kind of stay
0: on yeah, this fo- side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Focus on former athletes, and
1: then we'll go over to the yeah. So so the the thing that I struggled the most with is I I thought of my body very uh i I don't even know what the right word is very mechanistically like okay over time you build more volume you'll build more strength your body's going to adapt body's an amazing machine which is true but the the problem that i've had over the last about well probably since i started training because i started training in in like more bodybuilding style which where volume is king is i i didn't really pay attention to the, the obvious signs of your, your body trying to recover. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that can be everything from how hungry you're feeling to how well mm-hmm. you're sleeping to how much energy you have throughout the day and just your mood throughout the day as well, because what those things in themselves aren't necessarily that important, but they're signs of, of something that's going on within your body that, you know, if, let's say, you know, like what I used to do is I used to train seven days a week for around two hours and I would just push, push, push the volume. And I could get incredible amount of results in a very short amount of time. But the problem with that is, is that it doesn't allow your joints and your hormones and uh, just your nervous system in general, uh, Mm -hmm. any time to recover. Right. So what that leads to is feelings of, of like burnout, right? Um, it, it can lead to joint problems. For me, it was lower back problems. And it still kind of is, and I'm still trying to figure that out, because I still subconsciously push to a level that I, that I shouldn't, right? right. So I'll, I'll, you know, about once every four to six months, blow out my back and not be able to get out of bed on my own, and call myself an athlete, which is funny. <laughs> but um, is, but paying attention to those signs is is the, you know, kind of most
0: important thing that you can do. And realize,
1: that,
0: so so, what, so so real quick, real right. quick. Those signs are malnourished mood swings, um what else had you had mentioned? Sleep disturbances that that weren't there before,
1: right? Okay. And all these variables are going to be different for everyone. Everyone's right. going to need yeah. a different amount of sleep, everyone's going to have a different like overall like attitude towards life kind of deal, but if if that stuff is changing significantly, right? You'll have people who just started off in training, they'll They'll be doing really good for a couple, three weeks. And then they'll come to you on week four on, on a Monday and just be like, dude, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't even know how I got here. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. I'm super sore all the time. And that's not, you know, the, that's not a sign that it's like, Hey, things are happening. Let's push harder. It's like, let's back up for a little bit and still do movement, but not push your body as hard to allow it to, to recover you know and mm-hmm. just just actually listen to what people say when they say that recovery is the most important part of training mm-hmm. uh, recovery meaning nutrition and sleep and 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 rest and by rest what i mean is still moving but mm-hmm. not under a bunch of load like you would mm-hmm. in your training
0: rest rest weight
1: in layman's terms so to speak heavyweight yeah, for sure. And there's a bunch of different ways to do that. You can reduce the volume, mm-hmm. uh, or you can reduce the intensity, meaning you can reduce the total amount of reps that you're doing on a exercise per workout, or you can reduce the, the, the intensity refers to the amount of weight. Right. Mm-hmm. So, or you can do both. Like if you if your body and your brain feels really trashed, you, you can reduce both of those things, but it's actually just thinking about those variables. And you don't have to be a genius to, to know that like, Hey, my body feels like crap today. As long as you have an accurate, Right. And, and you're, you're being honest with yourself. You know, you, you don't have to be a genius to know that my body feels like crap today. Maybe I need to do these movements. But what these numbers that are on this program that I bought online for $50, <laughs> maybe I need to back them off by 20 yeah. or 50 pounds each, you know, I yeah. just do the
0: movement. Oh, man. So, I mean, there's so much of this because I, I was in a similar situation where I, I was burning out and I just had a hard time with lifting, and then COVID happened. So I couldn't go to a gym. And I just felt like, and I just did so much research because, you know, and I'll get into all this, but I found out that the fitness industry is like a $71 billion industry in America alone. And I'm like, okay, so obviously people are making money off of it and they're trying to push certain agendas that aren't actually real. So it is important to get accurate information out there, which is why I'm thankful for you doing this. One thing that I, okay, so I got my engineering degree, I love math, okay. And so, And I have another buddy who's an exercise science major and and we love to get into it. I think we just fight because we think it's fun, but (laughs) okay. And I am on the crazy side. So this, you may not have an answer for this or whatever, but I was talking to him about how maybe we're stuck in a linear mode of exercise and that hurts us. Yes. And maybe there's an exponential mode where we could scale it back and hit it harder, scale it back and, and whatever. But what are your thoughts on, am I dumb or is there something No, there?
1: you just went through an exact thing that every personal trainer should learn that I did not learn for my first four years as a trainer that took me forever to learn. But the, 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 it's funny that you use the word linear because like the, the, the overarching topic is periodization right Mm -hmm. and you know you know that with athletes like you probably talked with the um, strength and conditioning coaches about that at least a little bit but um so periodization is like you know for an olympic athlete they they think in terms of like every four years right and 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 you know we want to be peaking right at the right sort of deal right but for whatever reason people like you and i and just the general population we 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 don't think about periodization at all. We just think of it as a continual climb to the top Mm. of a never ending mountain. And that at some point when we're 95 years old, we're going to be magically squatting 4,000 pounds, (laughs) right?
0: That's Um, how it works,
1: right? Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) how it works. But so there's linear periodization and there's undulating periodization, Mm. Okay, So right away when like, let's say that someone is brand new to fitness and they've never done they weren't an athlete and they never done it before. The linear sort of model is a great model to start off with, right? At least initially, at least for the first, you know, three months. Um, you know, if they're kind of naturally already strong for whatever other reasons, if they got like that natural farm boy strength type deal or, or yeah. farm girl type strength, whatever, maybe it's 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 not as long. But some people can stay in that linear model, like you said for a a good period of time, six to 12 months, depending on how often they train, right? If they only train once a week or twice a week, because that's all they can do, then they could probably stay linear for a good long time, right? Mm -hmm. But once you get to a kind of a certain level of expertise, which we won't dive too deep into, you want to follow exactly what you said, like a a model where you work up and then you dip down, right? Um, And I've known of very few people who have um, had success with doing that? Just kind of off the cuff. Um, you 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 kind of want to have a plan for, it. and then people hear that and they're like, "Oh, so I got to be a freaking personal trainer." It's like, no, <laughs> you you can go on. You know, there's all kinds of guys that do it. Uh, Jeff Nippert is is a is a good one, you know, and I think he has his his drawbacks too. But just follow somebody else's programming because it's going to be like an eight week or a 12 week or whatever program, or you can come up with a super basic one, you know, like the most basic thing that you can do is like the three big, the big three lifts, Mm. which maybe you can get into, but just three exercises that use your full body. Um, and then maybe one or two extra, if you have time for them and that's it, it doesn't have to be, but you have to have a plan to somehow progress it Mm. over the course of you know usually around uh 6 to 12 weeks is a good time frame and then take uh, kind of a a a rest period if you will or a deloading period and still move but just do it with less intensity and less volume to let your body reap the benefits of what you've been doing but not Mm. only that during that time that you're building up you still should have some off days for your body to be able to have like a mini reset you know you need a bunch of mini resets and then one little bit bigger reset and we're not talking about five year reset we're talking (laughs) about
0: like a week or two (laughs) yeah no i i hear you uh but yeah no thank you for for saying that because I, I personally felt like I can't keep crushing this linear idea, and and we won't go too far in it because I do want to transition to something else. But I just I sense in the collegiate world, and not every place is the same. But where I've been, I've had good trainers, and I've had bad trainers. But in general, especially with smaller division schools, I don't know anything about big schools. I just feel like there's just such a model for linear strength program, and you got to get it done within this amount of time. And then you got to go play football season after that. And I just think it's so hard on the kid. And then it's just so hard to transition out of that as, as I did, and as you did as an adult. Well, there's,
1: I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of factors to consider with like, you know, what you mentioned about smaller schools and everything like that, because a lot of times it, it, I'll first off say it entirely depends on who the person is. I don't think it matters at all if it's a big school or a small school. It matters on who the strength and conditioning coach is or who whoever's running the strength and conditioning program. I think that's that's variable number one that uh, everything else follows off of, right? But number two, even if they are really good, a, a lot of times they're dealing with very compressed amounts of time where they have a training block. You know, you have. <clears throat> Uh, And you are right at smaller schools, a lot of times there's, there's more guys that go back for, go back home for the summer or whatever. And they don't stay and train all this all summer. So you can't periodize their training. And then the reality is, is that you're going to deal with some dudes who have been just working all summer because they want to have money to buy a freaking sound system or some other, (laughs) whatever, you know, sounds like you've had that as a personal testimony, (laughs) <laughs> well i was probably well no i wasn't the guy trying to buy a sound system i'll tell you that much. <laughs> but but you know and then they come back like three weeks before season and it's like okay we got to do something for this mm-hmm. for this kid so yeah no i i totally sympathize with that but then but then you know that because the only the only training really i guess why we you and i might get stuck in that linear mode like you said is because like if i think back it was like we had a six or eight week training period kind of at the kind of beginning of the second semester. Right. And like, I think it started in January or something. Yeah. And then we would train, we would match the beginning, train for eight weeks, match at the end. And then we were just done. Yeah. So we never, you know, sometimes we never really experienced a true like, okay, here's the idea guys. We're building all the way up here. Right. We're going to, you know, hopefully progress on a bunch of different things. And then we're going to drop down. We're still going to move but we're going to mm-hmm. let your body recover, improve on movement competency. And then we'll do sort of the same thing again, just changing some other variables, not the exact same thing. You, you definitely need to change variables, but, but we, we don't get that. We don't get the yeah. whole like, Hey, here's the idea. Now I need you to rest and recover as best you can. And I don't think that's talked about enough in, in, college sports in general or or with the general population is is recovery and and you know self-care you know people think of self-care and they think of they think of you know going to get a chiropractic adjustment or a massage which can both be good things particularly massages i'm not necessarily on the side of chiropractic but Mm -hmm. but uh i don't think that stuff
0: is talked about enough
1: yeah. And so let, let's
0: make that transition because I wanted to go there anyway with the general public. OK, so we talked about collegiate sports, our struggles. OK, so general public, you said opposite end of the spectrum earlier in the podcast, which is true. But there is a lot of similarities throughout that spectrum. OK, so if you could talk to the general public. Specifically to people who have probably been working out for like a year, OK, maybe feel stuck, maybe feel like they don't want to do it maybe the new year's resolutions coming to an end. Okay. What, what basic principles can we give them to help them stay on the train? Basically.
1: Just the, the, I think the first approach is to, is to know that you're not the only person that's ever done this and that's ever gotten stuck. A lot of times when people do get stuck, it's because, And it's a totally fine thing to do because it's how most people start. You start off doing three sets of 10 on mostly the machines, not on free weights type of stuff. And you, you can, you can make some, some progress that way, but it's, it's going to taper off at some point. So the hardest, the hardest part about personal training to me is trying to get across to people that they're not, they're not paying for a result they're paying for they're paying for a reframing of how they think about their physical and mental body because it all works together and at that point i already lost the personal <laughs> by the time i almost said. almost like a lifestyle yeah a lifestyle
0: almost yeah
1: yeah sure. and it's like people you know we want to talk in absolutes and yeah. we want I, you know i, I I get annoyed hearing it but but people want the the quick fix. So when you tell them that this whole thing doesn't have to be some super obsessive thing that you do 7 days a week for for 2 hours and and you try to lay out that more practical plan of improvement and actually thinking about what you're doing as you're going through it, you you will lose a lot of people because a lot of times when they've come to a personal trainer in the first place sometimes not all the times but sometimes that's what they're looking for is is, is like the, the quick fix type of deal but as far as people who are working out on their own who are <clears throat> are hitting a plateau just start th- actually tracking what you're doing even if it, it i can't say even if it doesn't make any sense it has to make a <laughs> little bit of sense right <laughs> but almost anything especially right away when you start almost any plan of improvement is going to work if you're thinking about trying to lift you know more weight in one of the big lifts like your like your bench press or your squat or your deadlift or or whatever so that that's one good variable volume is another good variable but the more most important thing to think about right away especially if you've never trained before is you know, a lot of, a lot of people get really frustrated early on because they're not squatting 300 pounds after having done it for six months, because for whatever reason, they view it as a, as a, a, a skill that everybody should be able to do, because it may be because they hear it on social media and in the media all the time that, oh, everybody needs to be doing squats, deadlifts and bench press. Right. And, and maybe, maybe they should. But they they kind of get the impression that this is like an easy thing that you just you do for three months and you just learn it and you should, just should be mm-hmm. freaking good at it. But there's a lot of reasons that you could be hitting that plateau. A lot of times it's just It's it's not necessarily that you you're not getting any stronger. It's just movement competency, right? Mm-hmm. We'll we'll see we'll we'll see people. You know, for example, when they're when they're bench pressing, the bar is just way too up high by their neck, and they you know. Uh, and they, you know, when we start talking about this with people, a lot of times, again, they get the impression that, well, I got to be a personal trainer, or an exercise physiologist. It's like, no, I like, and I'm, I'm going to say the name Jeff Nippard probably too many times, but watch one Jeff Nippard video a week and actually actively listen and pay attention to it. And you'll learn a heck of a lot more than, than you realize, you know, about mm-hmm. You know, like, where am I supposed to feel the weight on my feet when I squat or deadlift? Like, where is the bar supposed to touch? Like, you know, on my chest, when I come down, it's, it's not something that you have to train your entire life to learn how to do, but Mm -hmm. it's like, we need to empower people. Number one, to just do it, just get up, just get out there and do exercise. But number two, to not be afraid to engage with it. It's not Mm -hmm. some super duper complicated thing, you know, and A lot of the, I think a big a big problem that we're dealing with societally is that there's there's like this phenomenon of of trainers online trying to sell programs, making things really seem really complicated, but seem like they have the really simple answer once you get through the paywall right and and none of it's really that complicated in in the 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 era of access to information that we're in now, you can find and it doesn't have to be Jeff Nipper. that's just a guy I suggest to people because he is based around general fitness and wellness and nutrition. He's usually anyways not sometimes he is, but he's usually not talking about bodybuilders but and there's all kinds of books that you can buy on the topic. We just have to empower people to to learn about it, like. Right? For whatever reason, (laughs) people get this idea that they can do any damn thing they want because they're they're mentally tough enough in business or in, you know, parenting or whatever other area of their life. But then it comes to fitness and they think they think that they're just some sort of lost, helpless puppy. It's like, well yeah, if you don't engage with it and all you do is go to your trainer and you don't actually listen to them what you know, when they're telling you the more intricate stuff, if they even do that, then you're gonna feel like a lost puppy forever. But if you engage with it like you like you engage with other material that you experience in your life, you'll learn it over time. And it's not going to take six months, you know, so Mm -hmm. to the person who's stuck at one month, I'd say, just hang in there, keep moving, do different types of movement. And, and, you know, don't get too dogmatic about one thing or the other. You know, when people speak in absolutes, that's when it's time to kind of reel yourself back and go, Whoa, is this the person that I completely want to follow? Or should I just be taking from this person? What's been useful? You know, you, you'll, you'll run into trainers online that say that, that running long distance is for absolutely everyone. And you should start doing it on, on day one. And that it's, it's the best thing that you can do. If the reality is, is that if, if you're 400 pounds and you've never run before, Running is not a good option because mm. you're, you're going to do some, pr- probably some harm to, to your knees. Right. But uh, avoiding dogma, and it, this is probably not just with fitness This is and everything, but avoiding dogma and, and trying to use reputable sources, a couple of other ones that are great to listen to that also have podcasts and all kinds of videos are like barbell medicine. I love listening to those guys because they got a little attitude to them. Mm -hmm. as well, you know, but they're strictly science-based practitioners. Barbell Medicine and and Jeff Nippard put out good stuff, but, and uh, there's many others that I've even watched that I'm just not thinking of off the top of my head, but expose
0: yourself to that information. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Lots of good information there for anyone that's, you know, maybe plateauing, whether they're seasoned or not seasoned. And one thing I would just add to a little bit, is baby steps like you were saying that 400 pound guy shouldn't be running long distance and why well because there's baby steps to it you know you got to crawl before you can walk you got to walk before you can sprint really is the truth it's the truth to everything and I'm hearing that from you and I think that's great one thing that I did want to mention and it's a little bit irony irony because we both work there but how much does like a recreational sport help or or fitness class help for anybody in general, just just maybe on like a rest day or, or whatever it may be. Because speaking for myself personally, I had a hard time with just general stiffness, soreness for all sorts of other reasons, but basketball really helped me. And it's honestly been one of my best warm ups ever since I started doing it. And I, I can't, I tell people all the time, like ever since I started warming up with basketball and ever since I started swimming and then lifting well and training with you, it, my body has felt a lot better since, So I would just like to hear some of your thoughts on what you think about regulation sports.
1: It all depends on the, the type of personality that the person is, you know, but particularly if, if uh, you know, you grew up playing sports and you, you like playing sports do, do more of that. Like the, I think there, I, I can't remember now, it's been a long time since I looked at the numbers, but the recommended amount of, of like moderate to, or I think, low intensity cardiovascular exercises, like 300 minutes per week. And from mm-hmm. moderate to high intensity, I think it's 150 or something like that. But whatever you can do to get to that 300 number for the heart of your of your health, do it. Whether that be playing sports, like you said, just shooting around on your own if, if you're into basketball or playing pickup games or whatever it is. Do more of it. Uh, Like, no, I, any, any trainer that tells you to do less of physical activity, as long as it's not purposely damaged, damaging is just, is just wrong saying that for general fitness purposes, saying that, okay, if we're talking about bodybuilders and certain types of athletes, we're having a whole different conversation. But when we're talking about general fitness, you know, saying that you shouldn't do cardio because it's going to ruin your gym gains is just to me, and incredibly stupid. I I just, Mm -hmm. I don't know why we would be encouraging people to do that. Now, is just weightlifting more than enough cardiovascular physical activity? I mean, in a way, yes, you can be perfectly fit just doing resistance training in different ways, you know, doing some training that's more strength-based like higher you know uh, on your deadlifts or whatever higher weight lower amount of reps and then doing maybe one or two exercises that are more volume-based where it's three sets of eight to 20 Mm -hmm. but yeah I, I think recreational sports are are a heck of a thing and the place that we worked or you currently work at has all kinds of opportunities for that that place is like a an absolute hub for just about any freaking activity you want to do. Mm-hmm. You can, you can freaking golf in there. So there, you know, uh, that, and most people won't have access necessarily to something mm-hmm. like that, but, yeah. but anyway, you can find it, do it.
0: Yeah. I think for me, something that I kind of learned just recently is something that helped me was focus on one thing. So something I really wanted to focus on was back squat and then From there, little by little, these kinds of baby steps, I started to fill in the gaps. So I started to fill in the gaps of, okay, I'm focusing on back squat. Now, how can I fill in the gaps to make this back squat more efficient, make sure I have really good form, make sure my hamstrings are strong, make sure my quads are balanced with the hamstrings. And I just feel like that mindset as of late has really, really helped me gauge what's important when it comes to exercise especially when you're on a time crunch. So can you speak to anybody that's maybe on a time crunch that that's kind of in a similar situation as me where you know I want to remain healthy, a little bit of time crunch, how can I make or how can I fit into a good workout where I'm being efficient in all phases of the body? I mean, the, the big thing that you'll, I mean, if you type in this word on
1: Google verbatim, the, the big thing that you'll keep running into is, do some variation of compound movements, compound for people who maybe aren't into fitness. It just means that you're using most like your whole entire body once, right. There's uh, and I'm not talking to you, Josh, cause I know that you're on a different level with this, but like what, what you'll see a lot of times is, you know, like very isolated kind of workouts. Like day one is chest day, day two is back day, day three is legs. Day four is, shoulders or whatever. If you're on a time crunch, that is really not going to do the most amount of good for you. If we're talking about time expenditure and making the most use out of your time, let's say you can only work out, you know, twice a week for 30 or 40 minutes, right? Is your time going to be better? I mean, most people logically just know this, right? If you only have 40 minutes twice a week, is your time going to be spent better on doing you know, one set of, of bench press on chest and then one set of incline and then one set of decline and then one set of push-ups. because you're just isolating your chest. That's just, that's only doing one part of your body, one muscle group of your body, which again, is still better than nothing. But if we're talking about efficiency, your time would probably be better spent even just doing one, compound lift, like deadlifts, because if you think of a deadlift and again, for people who are super brand new to it, a deadlift is like, you know, just think of it as picking up a baby or picking up the the end of a heavy couch, right off the floor and kind of how you'd have to do that. If you think about that, you have to do many things at once. You have to, it's not just good for your muscles. It's good for your balance and coordination in a way, because you have to be able to balance yourself front to back particularly you have to be able to have enough grip strength to hold the bar with whatever amount of weight you're you're using you have to be able to maintain your posture in a certain way and you have to also be able to to move the weight and you have to use every muscle in your body from the ground all the way up to your you know your your shoulders to be able to do that and so you're working your whole body at once which makes it a bit more effective and there's a whole lot of ways to argue against that but those those are cutting into minutia that isn't worth the new gym goers time.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate all that. So let's let's make a little jump in topics, because I thought this was interesting when you uh, had mentioned this. And I just something that I don't know if I've ever really I mean, I've heard of this, but I don't think I've ever talked to anyone that's that's um, has this in their in their credentials but emotion regulation. And to me, I, I've kind of been around this a little bit. I don't think I've ever really said it that way. Maybe I have, I'm not sure. But from your point of view, and from what you've learned, what, what is emotion regulation? So um,
1: it's kind of a tough one uh, to answer, because a, a lot of times Unless you go through a whole entire psychology class on it, it's 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 at some levels difficult to even define what an emotion is, much less mm. how to regulate an emotion. So and I teach psychology. So I I, I think that this is one of a, a very important part of like an intro to psychology class. And it it's much more important than than most people think or or that most because most textbooks won't emphasize it. They'll talk about like what emotion is and emotion regulation gets like you know 200 words in a paragraph that's this long right and in part that might be because they think it's super duper complicated but emotion regulation there's a lot of neural things uh, nervous system things that are going on but it's basically and it it was it was something that was of interest to me and I kind of got interested in it because I was always uh, as an athlete particularly a little bit out of control emotionally, mm-hmm. um, and I would ruminate. Right, oh, something yeah. something bad happened, and I would I would ruminate for not just not just a few seconds or a couple minutes for like days sometimes. So th- th- there's kind of to put it simply, there's two different ways to approach. So let's just say let's just lay out an example, right? Let's say let's say you're 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 a high school baseball player we'll just we'll just kind of take your your example and and you know you 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 go up to the plate and because i've had this happen i i hadn't played baseball for a long time i came back my junior year to play and my first very first at bat i i faced a guy that was throwing a little bit faster than i was ready for Um, (laughs) and i wasn't ready for it for a multitude of reasons but it was like Pitch one, strike one. Pitch two, strike two. Pitch three, strike three. Didn't swing, didn't move the entire time, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and so we got back from the trip, and I I went and lifted, and and you know at like midnight in the weight room, and you know was making a bunch of noise and was all pissed off and and whatever. But I, when I think of emotion regulation, I think back to that because you can think of that in two ways. You can as you can either try to suppress your negative feelings and try to keep them under, right? Or you can try to think about it differently, right? Mm. Our natural impulse, particularly for, you know, in the research with men, our natural impulse is always to suppress that emotion rather than address it and then try to think of it in a different way. So the person who is suppressing it, and I'll get to why this you can probably already deduce why this is important, but I'll get to it in a second. The person who suppresses that thinks to, it starts thinking to themselves, okay, I just got to keep this down. I, I don't want to show that I'm feeling angry or, or embarrassed or what have you, right? And the reason that, that, that these are important is because that one, generally speaking, in, in many scenarios, has bad consequences, Mm. In, how, in how you feel about the situation in the future and just even how you kind of view yourself, right? So that's, that's option number one. Option number two is, is like strike one, strike two, strike two. Oh my God, what just happened? And you're walking away and you go and sit down in the dugout and instead of thinking to yourself, oh my God, that was so embarrassing. I need to, I need to not show the, how embarrassed I am or, or whatever. Instead of that, thinking to yourself, okay, let's think about this differently. I haven't mm-hmm. played baseball in, in three years now. I haven't seen a pitch come at me that, at 85 miles an hour ever. And <laughs> I was a little shocked. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I've seen 85 miles an hour. Am I going to see 85 miles an hour the rest of the year? Maybe twice, maybe twice yeah. out of 30 or 40 games or whatever. Okay, so I got that first one out of the way. And I've, I've stood up there and seen it. So everything else beyond that is going to seem like slow, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like a, like Babe Ruth level or whatever, you know? And so you can think about it that way. And that has much more positive consequences. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can apply this. And that's just kind of a simple little example of it. But there there's ways that students and people can do that, not just in sports, but just in their, their general life too.
0: Yeah, well, you said you said a lot of things that are really impactful, inspiring. And I love the baseball example because baseball is so tough mentally. And for anybody that knows anything about baseball, man, you're striking out more than you are getting on base. So there is a huge aspect to how can I think about this differently? One thing that has really changed that for me recently because I'm getting my master's in entrepreneurship here at Dickinson I read in one of the course books that whenever you make a mistake, and it sounds really cheesy at first, but whenever you make a mistake, you say, How fantastic. And for me, that was so like, screw you, screw this at first. Like, there's no way that I would strike out three pitches, right? Go back to Doug and be like, hey, how fantastic, guys. Like the dudes murder me, right? <laughs> but but you you take those baby steps, you you kind of mumble it under your breath. And then you start thinking about it in a different way and you're absolutely right like you know maybe emotion regulation isn't defined well enough in psychology i get that but what you're saying i think is so so important to any walk of life whether you're you're an experienced lifter who's kind of going through some trials or whether you're a novice novice weightlifter who's going through your own different types of trials that idea and mindset of how can I think about this differently instead of checking out or instead of ruminating and suppressing those emotions I think is so healthy it's it's so important and it needs to be talked about and it does need to be taught to to from me to you and and everyone else around younger kids older people whatever it is but especially to anybody that's out there listening is so important to think about your mistakes as a positive.
1: Yeah. And the, the, so the context is important here, but just, just to, just to support the point. Oh, before I say that, the, what, what you said, uh, uh, what did you say? Uh, how, how, fantastic. How, how great, how fantastic, yeah. right? In, instead of that, I always think of good, you know, that Jocko video. Yeah. Good. 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 Didn't get the gear you wanted. Good. You got tapped out?
0: Good. That means you're still alive. I love to I'm I like I'm chat. I want to that one
1: <laughs> Yeah, every time. But uh, but no, just to support the point about thinking about it differently rather than trying to suppress it or ruminating, right? Even even just literally distracting yourself sometimes is better than suppressing the emotion, right? Mm. Like there's there's been a bunch of studies on this. Uh one of my favorite researchers, I think he did the study. His name his last name is Wagstaff, but anyways, he did he did a study with like golfers, which is v- super duper mental sport. Yeah. And he, he was kind of looking at the same thing, but he wanted to see which was better or worse control condition or suppression or just just simple distraction. Right. And for golfers in that context, distraction was I believe, and I think, actually, cognitive reappraisal or um, thinking about it differently was part of it too. But I think in that in that specific context, just distraction was better. But the mm-hmm. suppression was 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 still the worst of the three. But so then then the conversation starts to get a little bit hairy and interesting when you think about athletes that you want to be a little bit emotionally out of control.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I'm saying?
1: Exactly. You want, you, you don't want your line, your middle linebacker, you like you want him a little bit out of control, you know, and you, so my kind of my, my theory on it, well, it's not my theory. Other researchers have said that it's very context specific, but it's like, you know, what realms and arenas of sport do we maybe not want to be so good at thinking about it differently? Maybe, you know, maybe we want to actually amp ourselves up. And everybody yeah. kind of has a different, like, set point with, with how aroused, and I'm not talking about sexually, but how aroused they are and how well they perform. And sometimes that's specific to sport or the, the person, too, even within the sport. But it gets into all kinds of interesting yeah. little avenues that you can go well, down, you Yeah, it's just to – yeah, I mean, it is.
0: And the one thing that I – because I struggled with this because I was the type of person on the football field that was – crazy but through a lot of you know good conversations and just kind of maturing and you know we all make mistakes but you kind of figure out how to compartmentalize and I think that's important like knowing when the jersey's on this is something and I was always respectful I still always respectful I still had this morality compass which was good I'm glad I did and and there's a way where you can be a really good football player of being aggressive in between the whistles. And there's a way where you can take that Jersey off and get out of the locker room and be a respectable person in society. There is. And I think these conversations help that. And I think people knowing that, that that's a reality is important. And like you said, we can go all over the map with this conversation, but just to put it quite simply, there is, there is contextual, you know, you know, descriptions and discretions to what we're saying. But in general, having a positive outlook about the mistakes that we all are going to make, and we're going to make again, helps us continue down that journey of, of allowing ourselves a healthier spirit, mind and body.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I guess I, I have way more questions and answers. I don't really have any answers, but a lot of times <laughs> no more when I you know the less you know, or... <laughs> yeah, but a lot of times when I think about that, I think about, um, uh, on what you said, correlation and causation, right? Everybody, you know, you, you, you hear people, uh, either imply or just explicitly say that certain types of people are more likely to be good at, you know, aggressive sports like MMA or whatever, you hear a lot of people make fun of fighters like MMA fighters and say that they're really out of control, maybe not as mature, maybe don't have very good control of their emotion or whatever, you know, they, Mm -hmm. you hear all kinds of disparaging things, but it, and then, so then when, you know, a, a professional athlete, really, really famous professional athlete goes and does something really, really stupid? Number one, they're just more under the spotlight than everybody else. But, yeah. but number two is that a is that a correlation or a causation thing, right? Yeah. Because people think that it's purely causation, like this certain type of person is this way, so they're going to be more likely to, to, to be a middle linebacker. I mean, is that is that really the cause, or is it just a, a correlation? Like, and other yeah. people that maybe aren't of that same trait, personality type, if you will, c- could, could be excellent at that same thing, but just go about it in a, in a different way, get to the same place in a different way. Like you, a guy uh, that I always thought was interesting or a couple of things that he said was interesting was Brian Dawkins. He was one of my favorites. Yeah. And, and he always talked about kind of like what you said about being able to compartmentalize being a, a football player and a father or a, you know, whatever, else outside of football and just being able to compartmentalize those things so i think that a lot of times we're we're quick to draw conclusions about people tend to think of mma fighters or or football players that you know play certain positions as being naturally aggressive or or naturally prone more prone to take risks or or whatever um but i think we should be careful with Mm -hmm. that assumption that it has to be yeah i completely agree i mean
0: and i guess i'm biased but to me it was passion and discipline combined because you can't you can't just be a neanderthal out in the football field nor in the or in the octagon like you have to be extremely disciplined to be able to perform at a high level so to me it was it was amazing to see and you know just as well as i do for anyone that's ever coached or played anywhere in college sports a lot of guys that are extremely talented may not make it because they can't be disciplined within the system to actually provide for the team. So it doesn't matter what, how passionate you are, although that's extremely important to me. It also matters, are you coachable? And if you are coachable, it shows me that you, you, you have that honed in. So to me, I don't really think that those two go hand in hand, you know, the causation or the correlation, as much as people want to just write people off. Yeah, and I don't—I'm for whatever reason having trouble remembering. But
1: just to kind of point to uh, or finish up the conversation on like the the importance of being able to regulate emotion in certain ways, I can't. Was it in the Super Bowl or the Conference Championship? At the end of one of the games, uh, a linebacker. Went and got a late hit. I think it was in one of the,
0: che- the oh, Chiefs. Oh, yeah. Games. It was the Chiefs versus the went- Bengals. So the Bengals hit Patrick Mahomes late. And it didn't yeah. cost him the game. Yeah.
1: And it, well, yeah. And, it, you know, you can say all that you want that it didn't cost him the game. But the reality is, is that it went from like a yeah. – whatever it was. It would have been a 58-yard field goal or something. In- yeah. And went to a 43 yarder which is totally manageable but 58 is yeah. like on the fringes you right. know so you, you can say all you want that oh it, you know it didn't cost him the game but so so my whole my big point here is that i empathize with the guy right yeah, he, yeah. he's yeah. in the yeah. situation and all that right but it 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 you know, just as a result, it, it actually did cost them the game. It cost people millions of dollars. And, and it was a big deal. And it's it's a decision that is that big. And, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, anybody could make a dumb decision in, in one scenario like that. But it's like, well has have has he ever really been trained on something like this right. you know and it's not i'm not saying that like every team needs to have a sports psychologist that follows each athlete around and is like this is how you need to be thinking about this route that you're mm-hmm. about to run and like th- that type of stuff but you know it's just interesting because it literally like you said it did cost him the game yeah well well let's
0: let's we kind of been talking about it without talking about it but let's conclude the podcast here with this last topic because I think it's something that hits close to home for both of us and let's just talk about mental mental health and and so i have to imagine that that guy that we were just talking about is going through some struggles oh God, yeah. A, yeah right and a lot of athletes are from middle school man and something i didn't think about until this last fall because i didn't really have to deal with it but social media like everybody if you make a mistake it's everywhere and even, even for just high schoolers, like when I was in high school, if I made a mistake, I got made fun of for maybe about a day. But now if a high schooler makes a mistake, it's everywhere. So just dive into that about how we can just help in general mental health for somebody that's that's from high school or even the NFL where they just got hit by a bus.
1: Well, and I'll, I'll diverge for a second because like one of my – prevailing, not so popular theories is like, if I wrote a book on it, I would entitle it why the tough guys actually Finish last. Right. Mm. So speaking to it from the level of uh, an NAIA athlete who maybe doesn't get the, the, the medical attention and care and don't get me wrong at where I went to school, they did a hell of a job. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's, let's just not screw that up. But (laughs) what I'm saying is when you have one or two (laughs) athletic trainers for a whole entire campus, because the first school I actually went to only had two on the whole entire campus for Mm -hmm. all of the sports teams. Right. But you end up because, you know, a lot of NAIA division three, division two type of guys are, are, are maybe just as motivated for their sport, but just maybe not as naturally talented. Like I know I wasn't. I'll, I'll just plainly admit that, Like Every, you know, I had to dream like when I was really yeah. little of going to the NFL, whatever. But at some point, like after my first knee surgery, I was like, okay, I'm a five, 10, 175 pound dude who has trouble gaining weight. Like maybe I'll go play arena for a while and then, but whatever. But anyways, you know, a lot of times in that type of situation, you you don't get the kind of medical care that you might need to be able to perform at a high level, especially if you are if you are actually putting yourself through the the the, the physical misery to the fullest extent that you possibly can. If you're one of the tough guys or one of the tough mm. gals or people, and but at the same time, it, it, like you you can't show it because you have to sh- show coaches that you are doing better with the stress that's being placed upon mm. you than everybody else is, right? So you're caught in this bubble where you, you, like for me, for example, when I got to the end of my playing career, every single time my head got jerked in any direction, I would get a stinger all the way down to my foot Mm. and it would happen 15 to 20 times a day at practice. And it was, it was just getting to the point of unbearable. And, you know, there's only so many times you can go into the trainer who already has 15 other people in the room. And there's only so many times that you can say to coach, like, Hey, I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm, I'm feeling heat all the way down my body every time I, I get hit. Right. And that's just a personal example. There's many other examples with other joints and everything, but, and a, a, a big problem is that a lot of guys and gals, people in, in those situations, th- the, they get kind of desperate and turn to something else. They turned, to, um, mm. it, you know, in, in my day it was prescription pain meds before mm-hmm. they became much more difficult to get when you went to the doctor. And it's not, that's not the only one. Um, a lot of people will turn to weed or alcohol is a huge one
0: in the upper Midwest. Yeah. Uh, alcohol, alcohol is the one for me. I mean, honestly, like, yeah. And I was from Wisconsin. So, I mean, it all made sense, but
1: yeah, I it, it was for me too. But as far as, as all that's concerned, you know, it, it kind of, sort of in a way goes back to what we talked about. Um, and I can only speak to this as a man because I'm a man, but, uh, you know, there's like the cultural sort of expectation to suppress your emotion. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's kind of the same thing with that. Like you're, you're expected to, to kind of suppress what you're, what you're feeling pain wise and what you're feeling psychologically. And a lot of that is, is is forced upon athletes by creating this warlike environment. Because mm-hmm. um, and this is a topic for a whole nother podcast. Um, but y- you know, you and I grew up playing football in the war era. I call it the war era mm-hmm. because ever since Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler Beckler post-Vietnam era, I mean, really, really that's kind of the whole idea behind football, is they wanted yeah. it to be more organized and warlike than rugby was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but especially since Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler, in my opinion, it's, it's been very much about war. And there's certain things that need to be done in war, but we have to keep in mind that we're talking about a game. Yeah. You know? And yeah, there's millions of dollars involved, but we're talking about a game. And I think that sometimes coaches need to do a much better job of, of facilitating an, an, an open forum sort of environment or at least providing outlets for that sort of thing you know because it's like you show up to the meetings you show up to lifting you show up to practice you you know you get told to be a tough guy and you continue to do it and then Mm -hmm. people reach their breaking point whether it be during their playing career like i saw on a handful of cases when i played or afterwards, which I've seen much more than a handful of cases mm-hmm. and it, it, it does bad things for the athlete. So I think a lot of that has to do with like, you know, what you mentioned with, with the environment that is created and just how athletes think about themselves. You know, it's like yeah. this war between two people yeah, inside yeah, themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. It really is.
0: And it's a little, yeah, I mean, shoot, you're at, you're really hitting the nail on the head. And one thing that you had said, I think one thing that, you know, obviously we don't have the answers to everything, but one thing I do know that does help is the outlet. So you even just discussing this on this podcast, I know it's a huge outlet. Me as a coach, I always tell my guys, like less is more, less is more. And you don't have to prove anything to me. I like you, I like you as a person. Okay, we're here to win football games as, as a team. We're here to be a family, a band of brothers. Okay, that doesn't mean you have to sacrifice your mental health. Whatever that is, you know, we don't have a lot of great de- definitions for anything. But that at least welcomes the conversation. And, and then we can go from there. And, and that's that's why I enjoy coaching. I, I enjoy coaching to make sure that these guys have an outlet. And I think both of us have been through certain experiences to make sure that we're just we're compassionate in the sense that we know that these kids need someone or something to make sure that they don't have to go down the same road that we thought we had to go down because we just didn't really have any correction at that point. And in that battle between ourselves, you know, we would suppress emotions because we thought that's what we were supposed to do. Yeah, Uh, Well, and just as a, like a more practical
1: type of thing, and I know it's a taboo topic for some people, but what, like, as a coach, what do you, what do you, like, do you know much about, or what do you think about meditation?
0: Like, yeah, I love it. So in that again is, you know, what is the definition of meditation to me? Meditation is finding a way to relax and have peace and synergy within your mind and spirit. Okay, and that will result in a physical piece. So how do you how do you find that synergy between your mind and your spirit? To me, it's asking questions. It can be a lot of things. There's some exercises, but for meditation specifically, it is about at the end of the day, turning a wrong idea into the right idea. Because I believe right believing leads to right living. So we all have. Some misinformation, or we have this wrong idea of who we are, or what we've done, and and this is kind of like where the conscious comes into play. So, really, meditation to me and mindfulness is being aware from almost like a third person perspective of your own conscience, and being able to coach your conscience into the correct mindset that's going to have that energy of peace between your mind and your in your spirit, which will allow your body to be at peace. I hope I explained that correctly. Yeah,
1: I do, mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's going to make sense to everybody in a in a different way. Yeah. Um. But I I always wonder about, you know, you talk about just be, and I can like speak to it from, you know, like when I do intro to psych and stuff. You know, you start talking about med- meditation, and and people will check out. But yeah. there, there's there's actually really very good evidence that. Meditation is effective in a multitude of ways, neurologically, and how people will report feeling about themselves and 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 whatever you know. Um, so I was just just wondering if like from what you've seen, maybe not like I don't you know expect every sports program to have like yeah. incorporated something yeah. like that, but like have you
0: seen have you seen more of it as a coach? So from my own personal perspective, no, but I actually have i what i call because i coach running backs i call it the, the rb bible so i have like a list of physical exercises kind of like an icebreaker and then i have a list of mental exercises and so there is different types of meditation exercises that you can do and i was going to give it to those guys because i am only an authority of my own guys and they know me well and they know you know a lot about what i care about and so for me i divvy out meditation techniques to my guys okay Yeah, no, I think, um, I think that's a good
1: approach to take, not just for, not just for mental health, but for performance as well. You know, whether it Mm. be, whether it be, uh, you know, during, during breaks in the game or breaks in practice or before practice or, or before film study, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff where even just using like they've done studies, um, some some scant studies where like they'll have one group of athletes not serve a volleyball they'll have another group of athletes practice serving a volleyball they'll have another group of athletes just mentally rehearse and use mental imagery to to serve the volleyball but they're you know i guess the point is is that There's a lot of those type of tools and it's tougher with football because there's a lot more variables, especially, especially on, uh, you know, if you're on the defensive side of the ball. But I was just wondering, you know, about like kind of the the mental approach, because, you know, maybe maybe you had some of them growing up, but there's a lot of those those guys and you don't expect a, like a youth coach to get into this sort of thing. Like if you can, mm. like for a youth coach, if you can keep them all on the field and, and keep them from taking a pee on the field, like yeah, have or if you can keep the, the parents off your back. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I was just wondering if more of that, more and more of that was seeping in a guy, a guy who you might be interested in talking to, even though you've had no exposure to him and he's more, how should I say it? More, along the same lines of how you think about spirituality and all that. A guy I coached under was uh, hes crazy successful head coach and defensive coordinator in the state of Arizona. His name's Gary Gallant. He, he, he taught me more like I, I came into coaching with the approach before I had coached with him that coaching was, you know, kind of like I said before, that it is just a game like but but you know i'm kind of saying that in a different way now yeah. it's just a game like whatever we can we 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 can relax about this it's not a big deal but he he introduced me to the more the like an actual leader you, mm. you know like a, a a really empathetic deep caring leader who who wanted to have more of an effect on his athletes than just getting him a scholarship or just winning a state championship or just in fact all of that stuff was really auxiliary to him but super super excellent coach that was that was really worried about all that and he kind of he kind of incorporated all that stuff in a weird mm-hmm. way and he's like the son of a preacher so he's like super good speaker mm-hmm. and uh, there's actually a mini documentary on his team in 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 toleson during the the, the season after uh, COVID year, um, and how they were coming out of it. And, and, uh, but he's, he's an interesting guy, probably my, my greatest coaching influence mm-hmm. thus far, other than my dad just being introduced to it when I was little, when he was a yeah. teacher, but, uh, yeah. Interesting
0: guy to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning. him um, yeah. So just some last things I will, because I know that you're interested, I will say, I do believe there is a wave in athletics in general, where people are not only willing to, but are are learning the wisdom to uh, help kids and help ourselves and and the the ones above us, the peers above us, where we are at least gaining ground in the mental health field with meditation and, and techniques and ways to just build a holistic approach where we're all we're all pioneering in the sense that we're 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 winning the battle of of this old montage of what a man used to be or what a woman should be. We're kind of crushing that away. and there's and there's some there's some battles, but we're're we're, we're we're starting to evolutionize in the sense of who who we really are as a, as, a, as a human race. Football included, but football is just an outlet really or, or a way to connect an avenue. And I think there is a way where there's new ground being broken, if I can say it simply. Yeah, I think at the core of,
1: of all that, trying to make that movement is, you know, I, I go back to, to Gary again, is you you, you actually, and I, d- I don't mean this to be another platitude, but you actually really have to not, I won't say care, but think deeply as a coach about the experience of an athlete and not lose sight of what your experience Mm. of an athlete was, or if your experience as an athlete was that you were just naturally more talented than everyone and you could do whatever the hell you wanted and you would have still been really good. Um, maybe put that aside and, and try to understand the experiences of, of, of the athletes that you're exposed to where you're at, you know? Uh, So no, that's good to hear that. Mm -hmm. Um, if if not the the rest of the world, that at least you're thinking about it. <laughs> I can honestly, I'm not the only
0: one. I'm not that cool. Um, you got any final words before we conclude this podcast? Good. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, when
1: when 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 bad things happen, you just I, I seriously, everybody's got to look up that video. Man, the Jocko video is. He's got a lot of good stuff, but um, that's one of my favorites. And it's got like music in the background, and he's yeah, got this very like low, raspy voice that he does his his podcasts in, and he's like <laughs> kind of whispering at times, and then he raises his voice for emphasis. And then right, you got to do that. Like he's yeah, he's he's super good to listen to. If you need to pick me up, and you're at a one month plateau in your gym adventure, <laughs> or something bad just happened to you, and you're having trouble thinking about it differently, go listen to. To Joko's good.
0: All right, I appreciate you. That's T.J. Dempsey, everyone, and I'll conclude episode three of Safari Two. Thank you. Thanks, much.